Hi, Ryan. Hello, Rachel. How are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. I'm doing stupendous. I'm doing very well. I'm excited. I'm excited, as Big Kev would have said back in the day. Uh, Australian version of Billy Mays, Big Kev, he would have said, I'm excited at the prospect of talking Babylon 5 with you, Rachel. I'm excited. So, Rachel, we're doing a Babylon 5 rewatch, which means full spoilers, of course. We are going to be talking about everything in detail, so if people have not seen the show, what should they do, Rachel? What should they do if they haven't seen Babylon 5 and they're listening to this? Not listen to this show. Go watch the show. Yeah, go watch Babylon 5 itself and uh, come back, especially when we're talking about this particular episode of B5. There's lots to spoil for down the line, so ye have been warned. We have a guest with us for this one, Rachel, but before we get to the guest, I want to ask the big important question, we'll get them to chip in as well, but we're the hosts, so we have to answer it first. Who would have said yum yum in this episode? Lisa. Alyssa? Alyssa. You think Alyssa? Wow. I really thought you, the Pac Marat was the obvious answer, mm. but he is the real answer. To me, he's, he's, he's not in the episode much, but he has big YYE, which is yum yum energy. Franklin. Franklin. That was going to be my second he choice. He has such smart ass smirking energy, and he, I felt like he would have said yum yum after asking what naan tasted like. That is, <laughs> that is my opinion. But we are joined by a Babylon 5 expert, a Babylon 5 historian, a Babylon 5 fan, and somebody also came on a previous episode of Star Trek Discovery with us. We are joined by Pat. Hello, Pat. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? I'm well. I, I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm abashed to be told that I'm an expert at Babylon Five. I'm going to try to live up to that. You better. I've spoken you up, and if you fail us, <laughs> you're dead. Right? You're uh, dead. Well, buddy. no, no. You just you 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 do it more politely. You say, "Oh, we sent Pat out to the rim." Right, yes. right. We cremated yes. his body and said it was a religious miracle that Pat exited the podcast abruptly. Um, that's how we will do it. Pat, what's your opinion? Who would have said "yum yum" in this episode? See, I, I was, I was thinking Alyssa, but I, I really like the Pac Morale one. That one, <laughs> that one tickles me quite a bit. <laughs> oh, just the ten, because there's that delay of with the translator, and because the translator like thinks about what they're saying, where this the tentacles move for a couple seconds. It's like yeah. gargle, 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 and then the translator's like. Yum yum. And you're like, oh, okay. <laughs> that would that would that would be so much fun because it'd be like, the delay build up to it. Yeah. It would be like an old Japanese dub where the lip movements are completely off, and they're oh. going for ages, and then the uh, then the bored American guy would just respond with yes. Well, that's a really <laughs> yeah. easy edit for you to do. That's an easy edit for the social media people. Yeah, it's yeah, it's like the park morale is eighteen syllables, but in English, it's just yeah. So. Pat, what is your history with Babylon 5 as a show? Because we had you on for Star Trek Discovery last time. We heard your thoughts on Star Trek. You're a Star Trek fan, not so much a Discovery fan. But I know you primarily more so as a, as a B5 fan. So I'm curious to know what your history and relationship with this series is. Um, so yeah, like I grew up seeking out whatever science fiction I can get my hands on. And... Uh... I don't know if I saw The Gathering when it first aired, but I definitely watched the series as it ran in the 90s. Uh, every, every, every summer was a weird one because you had such a weird uh, airing order or schedule, I guess. But uh, yes, now Babylon 5 is my DVD collection that I watch 
you know, probably at least seasons one through four, uh, probably once a year kind of thing. You know, you have to revisit. I, I, I skipped TKO. I'm sorry to say. Uh, what? Um, <laughs> well, you know what? I did rewatch it for, for the yum yum. And, um, I had a lot more fun than I thought I would, but he cried even. Uh, I heard, I heard he, he cried when Walker Smith said, watch your back. And you cried. That's good foreshadowing. I, no, I think, I think the best foreshadowing is every time I try to send you like a snarky and or funny message, like on discord or something, you always like to respond with Walker Smith. Just give me the thumbs up <laughs> every time. Cause he's so gleeful. He's just like, yeah, he's like There's that, a Zima um, behind him. Yeah. Well, he reminds me, it's, it reminds me of the, the like internet uh, Bart Simpson kid where he kind of like looks at the camera. And he's like, yeah, internet. Okay. It has that, it has that same energy, but, but uh, I, I didn't, I purposely didn't choose to show up for that episode. I, I was like, I want, I want to go to Naroon. I want to see Naroon. Yeah. Yeah. Naroon is where we got it. So you saw this around the time when it aired or just after? I, as it aired. Yeah. I, it I, aired. I kept, yeah, I kept up with it. It was right when I was like my awakening of like, seeking out science fiction quite a bit. And what was it like? Uh, because we often talk about on the pod, and many people talk about, you know, obviously nowadays, oh, Babylon 5 was quite different for science fiction at the time, or it was doing different things, or it was doing continuity. But what was it actually like for you being there at the time, seeing it unfold? I mean, yeah, because it, I mean, it was so much of that was, everything was episode by episode, but is uh, the continuing story, the buildup of characters, and like... So I, I, everybody keeps yelling at each other. Is this what what people are like in real life? Because people don't really yell at each other in Star Trek. Um, but They're to actually friends. experience it, and you want to like keep up with it. It kind of remind me, of, like you know, I was a kid and you'd be homesick from from school, and you watch like daytime soap operas. But then it was in space, and then that's when I was like, oh, that's is that where <laughs> is that where the term space opera comes from? I never put that together before, but. Uh, yeah, it was you. You wanted to keep up with it. If you, you couldn't dare miss an episode because there was no way to see it if you hadn't recorded it, right? Yeah. Whereas now it's like oh, on a streaming service or a PVR, you know, something like that, where you can catch it later. But if you missed an episode three years later, it would really punish you for having missed that episode. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Oh, he said, "Watch your back." Oh my gosh, I didn't. I didn't know. Watch your back. <laughs> So, we are talking about episode 17, Legacies. Pat, you do have the DVD description in front of you, don't you? I do, I do. So, could you proudly read it out for us all? Read the words that, uh, I guess, JMS wrote down. We don't know who wrote these down, but we'll have to assume it's the man himself. Big JMS energy, for sure. Um, Are the Minbari pounding the drums of war? Their planet-to-planet memorial tour honoring a fallen combat uh, combat hero raises suspicions aboard the Freeport dedicated to peace. It also raises Delenn's ire, leading her to take a stand against her homeland's warrior caste. What a description! And it it doesn't even mention the B plot. Nah. Uh, yeah, I have I have a written one for the B plot. Oh, you wrote one. I wrote one. Give us it. <laughs> Ivanova and, and, and Talia 
are given a school task to uh, raise a bag of flour as if they were parents. <laughs> <laughs> it's that episode of Frasier where Niles has to look after a bag of flour. Yeah, yeah, I was thinking Save by the Bell, but yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it's They're one of my tiny... favorite Frasier lines ever when Niles is saying, I am having nightmares about people kidnapping my child and sending me muffins in the mail. <laughs> <laughs> I can see how parents can be obsessed with worry. Last night, I actually had a dream. My flour sack was abducted and the kidnapper started sending me muffins in the mail. So I'll kick us off. I can't remember watching this episode for the first time anymore because I feel like I've always just felt the same about this episode where it's it's just solid. The B plot, not so much. Um... <laughs> But I always watch this knowing that Naroon came back. You were very clear about that because you have a big love for Naroon. I've grown to have a bigger love for Naroon. That's, it that's just the trick. Get, it gets more and more each rewatch. I love my I love my warrior boy. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so you don't really remember when you first watched this one, huh? No. You don't remember the wacky plot of the body going missing and then walking around going, is it the carrion eaters? Is it you, Natoth? No, you fuck I around d- all the time. Is it you? I remember more, I think, the second or third time we watched it when we were watching it with our, one of our ex-housemates. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was just like, oh my, oh my God, I don't want to see stomach content. Weakling, I I actually marked the episode down for not showing us the stomach contents happening. That- I wanted, to, I, I would have loved to have actually seen um, Doctor Franklin having to burn those lab coats. Oh, Franklin! We should have had a whole Franklin B plot where he he had a he woke up this morning. He's like, ah, it's gonna be a great day for me, and then hard cut comedy cut to you want me to do what, Garibaldi? Yeah. <laughs> That that would have been great. Like, like he just walks in and sees all the pack and he's like, oh, "What God. is this?" <laughs> he added an accent to the Pacamara. Franklin's the only person. Richard Biggs is the only person mm. to not say Pacamara. He says it with a little accented inflection to it. He says like Pacamara, something weird, and he's the only actor to do so. And I and I admire his balls to do so. Doc, just come to see you. Any results on those tests? Yeah, I just got him back from the lab. Next time, you can do the stomach pumping of a Pacamara. Had to burn two lab coats. Forget ever getting the smell out of it. A part of my relationship with this episode is I, on paper, I have a lot of problems with it. I think it's a lot of exposition. I think it's a lot of world building over actual narrative happening. I don't find the actual investigation or the actual mystery or the actual payoff all that interesting to watch, in all honesty. I don't care for the B-plot as much either, but I still really enjoy this episode in spite of all of those things. I can look at all those things and I say I have a problem with them and those are either true for myself or do take away some enjoyment factor, but for some reason they don't take away enough. I still enjoy this episode far more than some of the ones we've previously covered on the show. I just enjoy it. It's just a good time. I'm not saying it's the greatest episode of season one, let alone of Babylon 5. But when I watch it, I sit there 
and I and I finished the episode, and I feel like I didn't waste my time. I felt, hey, that was a yeah. fun plot that I just watched unfold. I had a really enjoyable experience with this, and then I move on to the next one, and I always think, ah, oh, Legacies, that's the one with Naroon and the missing dead body, and <laughs> and it's also to me also. One of the better Delenn episodes in season one, because Delenn hasn't been given an episode of her own till now. She's been in episodes. She's been pivotal to episodes, but we haven't had her version of Believers or her version of uh, Born to the Purple or Parliament of Dreams. We've just kind of had her around a lot. Here she gets her equivalent, I guess. She's the ambassador that's off the station the most often. Oh, except for Jakar, who's missing in the last nine episodes, like nine episodes in a row. He's just not here. Hence, Natoth is in this episode instead. But yeah, I enjoy this episode. I always have. When I did first watch it, though, Naroon didn't leave an impression on me, in all honesty. Uh, that happened much later when he became a bigger character, because here he was just a angry guy. And I didn't really take into consideration that he's the first real warrior cast guy we get to meet as an actual character. Because in The Gathering, that's a twist, and then they die. But here, he's the first real warrior cast character we meet. And I didn't appreciate that he didn't play it like Lanier, and he didn't play it like Dylan. He was a very different character, yet he didn't feel like he was from a different race entirely. He still had that kind of cold Minbari higher than thou presence to him but overall over the years of rewatches i've grown to really like his character and his placement in this episode much much more i think i think it's like you get this whole different aspect of the minbari with like yeah the warrior cast i don't think the idea of worker cast is even brought up yet at all no they're ignoring it they ignore i think i think it's either this one or is a recent episode where they said there's two casts. Like, they said it a couple like, times in the first season that there's two yeah, casts. Yeah, yeah. After the first season, then it becomes three. But um, yeah, so you got to see somebody who's like, because like, you know, you can almost think of like the Minbari as being like a weird mix up of, of like Vulcans and, and Klingons, but there's like, you know, they're cold and like uh, methodical, but they're also like sometimes they're like really about honor, but it does seem like you get the warrior cast and it's like you get honorable Klingons and strip away that honor that they're all like about the fight but they don't necessarily need to have the most honor except when it came comes to like their leaders right they want to like glorify them and respect them but like they don't they're not as beholden to the honor that I expect from like Lanier like Lanier will just do everything that way um, so it was interesting to see in the room where he's like these things are really really important to me and you know I'll tear this whole station apart just for that reason um so it was really interesting to see that a different part of the minbari culture but you didn't know it was going to be as as valuable as it does till later especially for like narun yeah he comes off as a one-off episode villain the warrior guy who's itching for war and sinclair has to restrain himself from punching him in the face or shooting back and He's Mr. Naroon's Mr. Ah, well, we owned the battlefield, didn't we, Sinclair? He speaks like a villain in this episode far more than he does in other episodes as well. I mean, I love Naroon 
but to me, he's... Decisions a, were made. Decisions were yes. made, and they kind of pivoted those decisions in the next episode he appears in, and the next one, and the next one. What the hell do you think you're doing? Everywhere has been searched, but here, where no one would dare to go. Wrong. So with this episode, Rachel, it is about our favorite thing, investigations and mysteries. And that's Lots how this, of Mr. Garibaldi action. That's how the series started with the gathering. It was a mystery and an yeah. investigation and let's solve this. And we had a problem with it there. How do you think about it here? What do you think about it here? It's serviceable. It it's hard to really critique it for me because it's just a vehicle for ideas more than anything in this episode. What ideas? Well, it's just, like, it's there to service exploring the culture of the Minbari and the relationship between, like, Minbari and humans and Earth, Earth Force and really getting to see some things that we've been told. Yeah, because up until now, we know that Earth and... The Minbari had a war. Delenn's talked about it. Lanier's even talked about it. And but... we know that the warrior cast isn't happy with the way that it ended, and everybody is confused why it ended the way that it did. Yeah, and in the series thus far, that's just been a thing in the background, yeah. and we don't really have a lot of context to it, and this episode brings some context to it. It brings some things and details into the light for us, the audience, to understand. I think I do have an issue with, in Babylon 5, sometimes they want to have their cake and eat it too by having a character like Mr. Garibaldi be the cop and be the investigator, and yet he he doesn't get to do particularly clever things or have particularly clever or fruitful stories to have investigations in. They're often this in which it exists, but... I don't think about the episode in the context of that was a mystery plot or that was a detective plot or that was them trying to gather or find something. It is what you say where it's a construct or a backdrop or framing device for them to... It's just there to push everything forward a bit. It's giving the world building and the exposition some momentum which the gathering was sorely lacking. We... We didn't really care about the mystery in that either, and nor did the movie, it seemed, for a large portion of it. And that was guilty, much more than this, of having nothing but exposition uh, guiding along, where this does have exposition and world building and mythos and so on and so forth. But this framework of a missing body plot and seeing how the even the b plot ties back into the a plot here makes it feel more substantial and substantive than if we didn't have it or if they didn't focus on it enough and just had it be did you know the minbari have a caste system and did you know that the minbari don't like sinclair all that much except for they do kind of like him it adds a little bit more weight but i do wish sometimes that babylon 5 could just have a detective investigation mystery plot and that's like the actual focus of it because I would never say for a show that has many mysteries throughout it that are paid off beautifully, 
I would rarely say an episode that contains a mystery to be solved in a manner like this is ever really that satisfying because I don't really care at the end that it was Delenn because who else would it have been? Yeah, and I remember being suspicious of her from the (laughs) get-go because she's just like, make sure that you're there, Sinclair. And it's like, why? There isn't the, the whole point of this is that it's a like Midbury only event. As much as I love Mira Fallon as well, she often plays Delenn uh in the first season as obviously uh mischievous she sucks. and sinister. <laughs> and it's like, well, who else would it be? Because Jakar's not in the episode, so it can't be him. And it's not gonna be Sinclair, even though Naroon really wants it to be. And it's not, it's not going to be Naroon. That's another thing. Even as evil as John Vickery plays Naroon, there's no way it's going to be him who does this. No, <laughs> I, I don't give that thought. How do you feel about all of this stuff, Pat? Uh, yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun when you rewatch it where it's like, it's so obvious that she's up to something. Um, but uh, yeah, it's interesting with the, uh, the backdrop of it all. Uh, I feel like this was like the first time we kind of got a glimpse at uh, what was the cause of the war, because the Naroon mentions uh, uh, oh, Star Trek name. What is it? Dukat. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dukat dying and stuff like that. And, and that was an accident. Know, it was an accident, but it caused them uh, great to uh, be greatly upset and to lead into the war, um, or at least to like drive them into the war, but how they had this war leader who came from religious background and stuff so it's like really important to everybody involved and then Sinclair is like oh yeah you invite me I'll come okay (laughs) one of the interesting details set early on is the cold open of the episode is the threat that the Minbari cruiser is going to fire upon Babylon 5 because it has its gun ports opened which is a sign of dignity and respect and they hearken it back to earth military traditions and such and such like that and there's a lot of tension at the beginning because Sinclair personally has a lot of trauma when it comes to facing off against these type of cruisers and specifically this cruiser as well because he does mention in the episode that this was one of the cruisers. This this military leader was one of the people who shot and murdered all of his friends in front of his eyes, which I think is a, a great stress point to put on Sinclair because if in any other situation, if this was the same episode, but the circumstances of that were slightly different, I don't think Sinclair would be as antagonistic and as stressed out as he is in the episode. So it justifies his anger that we see him bestow throughout the episode because i kept writing in my note that everyone was really pissed off in this episode sinclair especially he was very pissed off but let's talk about the gun ports being open we don't find out in this episode specifically that 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 is one of the events that caused the the minbari earth minbari war yeah, because the misunderstanding in a different context causes an entire war that almost wipes out humanity. And that's one of those things upon a rewatch, we would all agree, makes the episode even better because we see that a good Commander Sinclair almost fell into the exact same mistake that caused the war in the first place. Yeah. 
Yeah, I guess like it's not part of the command book. Be like everybody, everybody who's in charge, you need to know that the Minbari might do this again. Like mm. I was very surprised. I mean, again, on rewatch, that uh, he didn't know that that wasn't part yeah, of the. the it's, not, it's not taught in history to, classes. To put that in, or Lanier didn't put that in the dossier when the like they knew that the cottage was coming in. Yeah, I think a part of. And maybe this is season one not being fully tightened up with the continuity. As we say, there's only two cast systems. But I always got the impression that most people from Earth didn't fully under don't fully understand what caused the war in the first place, other than we shot first, rather than misunderstanding of uh, symbolism and uh, all of that kind of stuff. And the Minbari don't feel the need to fucking explain it to these lowly humans. That's Naroon's perspective on the matter. We are on a peaceful mission, Commander. Then why are your gun ports open? We have no interest in explaining our ways to you. With the actual investigation and mystery body plot, Rachel, how do you feel about the actual justifications from Delenn and the actual backstory of why this is all taking place in the first place? Not just Naroon's motivations for parading this around to basically give the middle finger to Earth everywhere they go <laughs> and basically say, this guy fucked you and we're celebrating the fact that he fucked you. Other than that, how do you actually feel about... Why Delenn did the things she did? It's a bit bullshit. You think? Yeah, like you don't you don't side with her? No, like it's like I understand why she did it, but it's still bullshit that she goes about it and the way that she does. She's like, I really thought that I could get away with this. I would just say that it was a religious miracle, but you had to do your job, didn't you? <laughs> so you're not hashtag team Delenn. No, not in this episode. Why not? <sighs> this kind of shady Delenn I don't like as much. I, really? Because I, I don't think she's justified. You don't You don't think that her motivation is uh, a justifiable one or, or an understandable one? I understand it, but I don't side with her. But I don't really side with Naroon either. I'm just like, yeah, like it's his his family had control over his body, and his new family was that clan. The clan, and it it makes respect his wishes. Yeah, like it makes sense that everybody does what they do. But I'm just like, you could have just pulled rank on Naroon without stealing the body well this is where i think pat and i will teach you about production order versus uh release date order because pat i'm sure you're familiar with what legacies is when it comes to that aren't you uh, no, I think you threw me a curveball. I'm, so I'm not sure where you're going so with this one. So one of the interesting things is air date order for the first season wasn't in the correct order necessarily. So Legacies mm-hmm. is supposed to take place after Babylon Squared, where Delenn is given the Triluminary device, hence she's able to use it in this episode to yeah. steal. And in that episode... She relinquishes her powers of the Grey Council. So when she's dressing down Naroon, she's got uh, she's bluffing. She actually has no power to pull over him. 
she oh. has no rank and she's not speaking on behalf of the Grey Council, actually. So, oh, so she's even more full of shit than she, I thought and, she and was. And that's why she acts the way <laughs> she does. If she was full Grey Council Delenn, she may not even still be able to do what she wants to do, but she, like, in the order that we have, we don't have that order. Babylon Squared takes place after this, so here is that thing, but this is an incongruity of the air date and the production because she has a device she hasn't been given yet, and mm. if this was aired after Babylon Squared, we, the audience, would know even more so why she does it the way she does it with a secrecy, because she can't pull rank, she can't pull power, because Nurun could actually call her out. But in this... She's bluffing at the end. She's pushed into a corner by Sinclair and Garibaldi finding out about the situation and forcing her hand. And she gambles. She makes a gamble. And that's another reason in season two, when Narun takes her place on the council, he's extra pissed off at her because he also knows that she was bullshitting when he told him (laughs) off the first time round. So that is a weird byproduct of the episode where... You, Rachel, will not be on Delenn's side and not understand how, how she does the things, why she does it the way she does because of the air date order. Would you think you would understand it or be a bit more on side of it if it was put in the correct order yeah. where she's having to pull it out of her ass and but not I be able to get that use her power? feeling in the episode when she's like dressing down. And I'm like, it doesn't feel like her power is ringing true. Mm hmm. Uh, but at least she didn't pull out the grav ring again. No gravity rings. <laughs> no gravity rings. But she used come- that to carry the body. Yeah. 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 Used that to carry the body out. That's a good. That's a good one. She used all of her rings. Yeah. Uh, but when it does come to this, Rachel, I am very surprised to hear that you're not hashtag Team Delenn because for myself, I thought she had a very sympathetic and understandable reasoning because the most genuine and nice version of this character we see in season one is how she relates to other Minbari figures in her life. Later on, we'll find out how close Dukat was to her. We'll find out next episode about her good mentor, Dral. And we've had one or two other examples been talked about. And when she does talk about these figures in her life who have helped shape her as a person and as a political figure and a religious figure... there's a genuine quality to her. So when she is motivated here to jeopardize her position and jeopardize the safety of Babylon 5 even to honor and respect the wishes of a dead friend. I completely buy it. I completely understand that Delenn would do that and I understand why she does it in the way that she does. But I just don't like it. And like that's a, a sign of the show shows quality of I can completely understand the character but I don't have to side with them to understand them. Yeah, but I'm saying to you that I do side with her. Yeah. Uh, because also Narun is... And extra- I understand why you you do that. And the other factor is because Narun is weaponizing the, the death weapon. of the man yeah. to... He's weaponizing the body. He's weaponizing the body, and he, he's using the death of the man for an agenda rather than actually honoring the man. And Narun is self-interested in this episode, and uh, it makes him an unlikable villain in a good way, and it makes Delenn more likable. And 
when she does give Narun the dressing down and when she does give him the go fuck yourself speech, it's one of the most satisfying comeuppances of a villain we've had in the season thus far. Yeah. They don't have to die. They don't have to get exploded by Vorlon or they don't have to get shot after killing, after trying to kill David Warner. They just get told off sternly by this small woman who's making a fucking diorama with a bunch of plastic triangles. And it's one of the most satisfying comeuppances of an antagonist this season has had thus far. How do you feel about uh, the revelation of why this plot has taken place, Pat, when it comes to Delenn's motivations, why she did so, and the whole backstory of the body itself? I mean, I'm I'm a little bit reeling just from the finding out that the production order thing it changes my opinion a little bit. But I I like what Rachel was saying because it kind of makes me feel when you find out all that, it makes you kind of feel like both Narun, you know, both Narun and Dylan are both like the quote unquote villains of the episode. Like they're both or antagonists at least. So the comeuppance is is a lot of fun because it's like the both of the foils are you know at they're attacking each other as much as they are trying to endanger Babylon 5 or get Sinclair in trouble. Um, but yeah, I always thought it was pretty interesting that she was driven as far as she was to make sure that this guy's uh, wishes were fulfilled because he was of religious uh, uh, upbringing, right? Like it wasn't, so how do they phrase it? Was his house? It was religious. He was, or, yeah, yeah, he, he was, was a high priest, and then he chose to do he, the warrior cast. But then he joined a warrior's house. Is that? Yeah, during the war, he felt compelled to lead a warrior caste clan. Before he became a warrior of the Star Riders clan, Premier was a high priest of the religious caste. The holy war against Earth forced him to become a war leader a brilliant tactician and he believed in the rightness of the war he fought because it was a matter of conscience but he never ceased to be a priest in his heart also just like well we only have Delenn's word that this was his wishes at some point Mm. we don't know when that may have shifted well one of the great things about the acting is when she is dressing down Naroon. He's like, oh, yeah. The look on John Vickery's face when she brings this up of silent and regrettable, yeah. acknowledging that she's like, correct, that they yeah. that they aren't honouring his wishes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't need the exposition no, and dialogue. We just need John Vickery to express but, like the, facial, major- the majority of the episode, <laughs> you're just like, oh, well, I'm like, well, I don't have proof either way. And then it's that scene after she's done all of this shit. And then it's just like, okay, well, yeah, I guess, of course, Dylan's going to be right because she's the character that we're with. She's one of the main cast She's going to be the righteous one. Kind of. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She's corrupt, but she's righteous at the same time. In this instance, she has justification. Kinda, yeah, yeah. But yeah, you were saying, Pat, about yeah, her actually willing to do all of this stuff and actually willing to put the station in danger for honoring the wishes of her friend. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like it. It speaks to like because you know when Narun gets mad at her later because she's like you know grabbing that power by becoming leader of the rangers and and like she is the type of uh person who's willing to do anything if she thinks it's justified 
um, she might not think of the consequences as much. You yeah, know, like vote to people. have a genocidal war against another race. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like you don't realize how how much uh, pain and suffering she has caused in her in, in her decisions. She you know she regrets them some of them you know, but she'll always go with what she thinks is the right thing. Like she she goes all in. Oh yeah, <laughs> is, is her style. I agree that she is an antagonistic force in the episode as well because she's undermining the investigation. She's willing to put Babylon 5 in danger. She's willing to put Sinclair in the hot seat and forcing him to interact with these people in an antagonistic view. She's willing to chew Sinclair out for not doing a good enough investigation even. And it's unfair of her to do so, but she's doing it under this guise of I'm trying to honor a friend one of the interesting things I think about with the Minbari is their religion and their religious values, and that Delenn in in the series, she's the religious character, she's the religious caste leader, she's one of the highest religious people in, in the uh, Minbari society, and in this episode, I find it so fascinating and rings so true to events later in the show about how Delenn is willing to use religious iconography and miracles and stuff as excuses to do horrible things or to get away and do things and basically undermine the value of said things. She is willing to say, the body disappeared and I'm going to lie and say that it was a religious miracle. And in a way, saying that the religion is false in a way where we can just make bullshit up if it serves the purpose. Yeah, she if she wasn't a religious cast, she would just form a cult of personality if she needed it to do things, you know, like as a justification. Well, not a justification, uh, um, to facilitate what her needs are, right? Like she would mm. make up miracles if it served a greater good. If it served um, the greater good, and you can't help but think of Hot Fuzz, greater good. Shut up! <laughs> I have a I have a Hot Fuzz reference I was going to use later, so oh. I'll put a pin in that. Yeah. Put a pin in the Hot Fuzz references. Yeah, for the B-plot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, but that is also why when it comes back around to Naroon interrogating her, it's like, well, yeah, she is a bit cuckoo. She's willing to say all of her actions are justified because of destiny and fate and I'm a religious person, yet in this episode... I'm special. And I'm special, I'm the chosen one, (laughs) and I'm a religious person, yet in this episode, it is really kind of disturbing that she isn't afraid to mask her lies under that as well and it adds to the gray nature of that belief she has of being the chosen one and has destiny if she isn't afraid to use it to lie and to cover up said lies like how do you feel about that rachel when uh we were talking before and we were making our notes about what we were going to talk about and we both talked about like yeah let's talk about how (laughs) delen shows us that the minbari religion is a manufactured religion yeah you're (laughs) Your notes go through, like, all of these different things, um, and one of them just is, Minbari religion is false. Because isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. And I was just like, all of this can be simplified down to the Minbari are fucked. A rift between the religious and warrior castes began when our warriors were ordered to surrender. 
happen to the body were to become general knowledge, it would further that rift. When it comes to their religion being a, a being a, a construct, Rachel, I'm not just using the example of Delenn lying by saying a religious miracle took place when it actually didn't because it would serve my purpose. Valen? Valen exists. Valen? <laughs> yeah, she knows Valen. <laughs> he's next door. <laughs> he's next door and she's grooming him to be Valen in minor parts. How do you feel about all of this stuff, Pat, when it comes to the Minbari society and culture? Do you like the proposition that the Minbari culture and religion is just this elaborate manufactured thing? Because in the end, Sinclair knows how the Minbari work and goes back in time and creates the whole entire religion so that they can be where they need to be in his timeline. Yeah, it's... uh a, you know, self-fulfilling prophecy that like it's she's teaching him her religion so he can teach it back to them that it will only fulfill the purpose for a thousand years because the Minbari were only true to themselves really before that before Valen showed up during the first like the previous Shadow War mm-hmm. and uh, as Rachel said they are pretty much fucked in a lot of ways going forward because now they're no longer locked into like a destiny loop or we, we know that they like the shadows attempt to change the timeline. Cause they realize that Babylon four is important, but um, like, I have to imagine part of her being like, I'm willing to put everything in danger for this one because she knows it'll work out because he's going to become Valen. Like, like I can't screw it up because I know it works out because he's going to go back in time. Yeah, I like mean, he's not gonna die. So he's not gonna and, die. Yeah, like I'll make sure he won't. I know that Babylon Five is okay at the end of this. So you know, well, he's here at least. But like, how do you feel, both of you, about the statement Babylon Five, the series, is making about religion when it comes to this side of it, where we are presented throughout the first season that the Minbari are the most religious people that we know in the show, and Lanier is the most devout religious person we know. And yeah. there's, that, there's, that, there's that, when you get presented that, there's that idea of, oh, well, they must, ha- I don't know how to describe it, they must be right in some way, or the show must, the show must believe that they believe these things. But then we're presented this entire big backstory where mm-hmm. one guy called Jeff decided their entire religion would be built around what he knows from the future. Yeah. Meaning that everything about religion is a manufactured bullshit false thing. Or do you think that's what Babylon 5 is saying in any way when it comes to this aspect? I think it is just a reflection of religion is a creation of people to explain their experiences and their world. Yeah. So Delan is just like recreating that through it of like, well, the body has to disappear, so we'll have this justification for it. Mm. Um, And I don't think, I don't know. I don't see it as a full condemnation of religion in general. I think it's just an acknowledgement that religion, like any other aspect of society, can do good and can do bad mm-hmm. and can be manipulated by those in power. They 
find purpose and guidance through the religion, whether the, whether they know it's bullshit or not, it still gives them purpose and guidance. Um, like they, they, that's the drive of it, right? Like that's, I mean, Watercast, you know, it gives them purpose because they go fight and hurt people. That's what their drive is. And religious cast is guided by the fact that like, we need to give religion to the world or spirituality. Um, you know, so it gives them all sorts of, I would say excuses, but it just reasons to act the way they do. So I don't think it is like a condemnation of religion per se. It's just what makes people tick, you know, what, what makes them get up in the morning. And it might just be like, well, in my religion, I get up in the morning and I have to do a ceremony every day because that's what I was taught and that's what keeps me going. Um, and I think that's maybe where Delenn sits. Was like, I'm fulfilling something and that's enough. So I don't think it's a condemnation. I just think that's how people work. Yeah, it's more about the power of faith than the truth of it or not. It matters what you do with it. I do think there's a level of condemnation, though, because once Sinclair, the man himself, goes back in time and leaves, and we're already seeing it here, the constructs of their faith and the stuff we're talking about is causing massive societal issues and problems. People keeping these truths and people doing these things. And but look, I think on a basic level, if you found out as a devout Christian that for a fact Jesus was actually a false prophet that was put there so that they could write the book on how you have to behave for the rest of your life, you wouldn't be very happy about that, necessarily. (laughs) You thought he was the son of God. And that's what I'm talking about, where, in a manner of speaking, the entire Minbari religion and the belief of the human soul is there so that they don't exterminate the human race <laughs> in a holy war because they find out that they have the human soul, which is actually just human DNA. Yeah, yeah, and, that's a good point. And yeah. that is why I say... But that's the thing. Babylon 5 is very good when it comes to religion. It's very pro-it and very anti-it because he, it is written by a former Catholic who's an atheist. So he understands that there's values to religion, but he doesn't necessarily have them himself. And that's what makes it so interesting. And that's what I love about this episode is we're seeing the conflicts between two people, the religious person who's using the spirituality as an excuse to do horrible things. And we're seeing the warrior guy who's using pragmatism to do horrible things as well. And it's showing us how at the moment, just these two caste systems that exist operate on completely different levels, but are willing to do the exact same behavior, which is justify their selfish needs or their motivated needs via their caste system ideologies, which was only created because Sinclair needed things to happen. Yeah, it's the dangers (laughs) of a stagnant society as well. That is why I find the whole Minbari thing fascinating on a rewatch and to dissect it and go... Is it good? Is it good that Sinclair went back in time and wrote the book on how they have to be? Because what we love about Naroon, to talk about Naroon, is to me his character arc is learning that you don't have to be one. You can be a warrior whose heart is religious. Yeah. But that's not how the caste system exists. Mm. currently you're not allowed to you're not allowed to do that because sinclair needs you to be one way so that you don't eradicate his species in the future (laughs) 
Yeah. But... I mean, I never thought of it that way. I thought it was just like, you know, just of the previous shadow war, but it was like, yeah, like the whole uh, religious text that is to protect humanity from being wiped out. Cause mm-hmm. human- humanity is, you know, Babylon five says is, is like the only one with like a true destiny or not destiny, a future to fulfill. Right. Where we see that they become like Vorlons with the uh, encounter suits. Uh, they've been watching season one for a million years. Yeah, <laughs> like me back yeah, in the day. That's when you. I had this that's one you. Was... That's what you look like. Yeah, that's you me. say you look like Zathras, but you look like a guy with a shaved head with a pale complexion. Yeah, <laughs> I'm Jason Ironheart. I'm there in a million years. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, Commander. I will see you again in a million years. Let's talk Naroon. What what do we love about this character? Because all three of us seem to like this character to differing degrees. Where, what about you, Pat? What, what do you love about Naroon? I mean, I just, I think it's like he's driven by something that's, you know, he everything's super important to him. And he thinks about everything through. Like, he might do the wrong thing, but he's kind of a, the other side of the coin of Delenn. But you said it as well, like, in this episode, he's not really... He's not really that Naroon that I like as much as he is later on. Um, but he's, I don't, know, I, just, I don't know, I think he just resonates really well with me. I don't really know exactly what it was, but it was always just, you know, important for me whenever he showed up. Yeah, yeah I'm the same. I think of Naroon as such a well-defined secondary minor character that we no longer have to say if, but... When JMS does a reboot of the show, you could easily see the Minbari in that version of the show could just be Naroon because he's so well defined of having a strict ideology to a level of almost a protagonist degree. And he's only in five episodes spread across four That's seasons. That's crazy. I didn't. Yeah. yeah. And when you get to his final episode in season four, it feels like you've watched a main character reach their final arc and conclusion yet he's only a minor character who appears once in a blue moon because he's so well defined and even though here in this episode he's in that level of Naroon he does have motivations that make him understandable and different to Delenn where he believes he's right as well he believes in the warrior cast uh, methods, which we are learning for the first time thanks to this episode by actually seeing a warrior cast member instead of being told about them from Delenn, which we've been told about. It's different to actually see a physical guy there rather than being talked about. And John Vickery, it's his performance as well. He's just fun. And... I think he isn't the greatest in this episode in comparison to the next one and the one after that and one after that, but there's moments in the episode itself you see why they cast him as this role and why they brought the character back because there's the final conversation he has with Sinclair and it's almost like JMS and co watch that scene and they figured out what the character should be and how the performance should be from there because that final conversation with Sinclair, the way the Naroon's written and the way his character is performed, that's the Naroon I think of, rather than the one who jumps Sinclair in his quarters and wants to fight him. That's not the Naroon I think of. <laughs> that's too silly for me. Uh, what about you, Rachel? You're you're a fan of the character too. Yeah, and I I think you're right. I think I would go as t- 
as far as to say that Narun gets better each episode that he's in. Like, I I think the final episode with him is the best. The best of Namroon. He's pretty great. His heart is religious. Yeah. And it, like, it makes so much sense. And it is really amazing to have such a powerful character that's only mm. in five episodes, but he is so important. But yeah. he doesn't have to be a main character to be as important as he is. When it comes to Naroon in this episode, Pat, how do you feel about it knowing how he goes on to be, but also thinking this could have just been his one-and-done appearance, or this could have just been his character of being the recurring mustache-twirling warrior guy? How do you feel about all that? I mean, yeah, he could have easily just been a one-off thing. He was just a Manbari who represents what a, maybe a typical warrior cast person would be like. Uh, which I think is like a bit more how um, the uh, the ship that went missing, like the Minbari ship that went missing, that comes back to try to mess with Sheridan in season two. Like that could have been that could have actually been like how he ends his story, right? Like they could have brought him back once just to have him like try to commit suicide and then goes away in shame um, or suicide by by firing squad, kind of by by combat. Um, I always think it's more interesting because we talk like again. I really like how you described it, his whole story that we could have had instead of a, a, the the book of Jakar, we could have had like the book of Narun, where like he could have easily have been written the story about what the Manbari should be, because uh, he was seeing things the way that that Delenn couldn't see it. Um, I mean, I think his sacrifice taught her something, but when I look at him just here. Like, yeah, he's, he's, look, it's that warrior cast guy, you know, he, he, he doesn't mean as much, but when his eyes glow, <laughs> he's like, he's like Gawron, Gawron level eyes. Like, oh yeah. I mean, John Vickery was in Star Trek a couple of times, he played a Klingon lawyer in, uh, Enterprise. He played a Betazoid in Next Gen. I remember him in that episode because he's in a catatonic state because he hasn't slept in oh, weeks. Oh, yes. Uh, and he has okay, no lines of dialogue, really. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and he looks like Carl McLaughlin outside of the makeup, which is very distracting <laughs> to me. true. You talk like a Minbari, Commander. Perhaps there was some small wisdom in letting all species survive. We like to think so. Sinclair's Valen. That's a given. That is this episode, right? Like, that's, I mean, they flash back to it when Sinclair is becoming Valen. They flash back to, you talk like a Minbari. That is just one of those things that also elevates the episode of, ah, oh, they really did see through that Sinclair has a lot of Minbari tendencies to him, huh? Because. Or Minbari have a lot of Sinclair tendencies. Well, yeah, that's the truth. They talk like Valen, aka they talk like Sinclair. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. <laughs> You're a far more religious man than I gave you credit for. Yes, flashes to him being <laughs> fucking Valen, Space Jesus. I'll take Space Jesus over Space Hitler, thank you. Yes. Thank you, thank you. But that is a cool touch, and it's ironic that it's... <laughs> Narun is speaking to him about that, and he says it in a way where he's saying it naturally, but when when the lens says it... She knows the information or has an understanding of his fate. Narun doesn't, and he just comes to that conclusion naturally. Which, 
makes it much more fun foreshadowing when you rewatch it. Because, yeah, it's cool that we rewatch the first season and we know that Delenn knows and she's saying we were right to choose you and write about you. That's cool. But to me, this is far more effective because Naroon naturally came to a conclusion that us, the audience, is coming to as well. Thus, when the payoff does happen... It feels like it has been earned because even other characters who aren't the ones in the know kind of gathered it themselves. It's just that basic thing of a mystery is way more satisfying when you can rewatch it and go, all of the clues are here. And it was all there for me if I could piece it together. Mm-hmm. And that's Naroon's experience, but that's very different than Delenn's experience with this. Bad foreshadowing is in this episode too, though, because the episode literally ends with a, a boring-ass bad character saying, Delenn has a word in her head called chrysalis? <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, God. Pat, come on. You and I are B5 fans, but we're not, we're not blind. There could be bad foreshadowing shit in this show yeah, too. Yeah, yeah. Right? And yeah. is that a bad example? <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, it's a pretty good example of a bad uh, <laughs> foreshadowing. I yeah. also like the vocab explanation. Like, oh, I think that's like a cocoon. <laughs> He's pretty sure it's a cocoon because she's 14. <laughs> yeah. She doesn't know what a chrysalis is. In all fairness, Babylon 5 taught me what a chrysalis is. I didn't know what one was either until yeah. I watched the show. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. But also she could have just been like, Oh, that's a word. Let me go ask the Babcom to look it up for me. Well, he's already done that with uh, uh, Satai. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. But that's, yeah, that's, it's not even a borrowed word. It's just Christmas. <sighs> how yeah. would you do a, how would you do this though? Because if you don't explain what Chrysalis oh, is. Oh no, you have to, you have to. And then to. at the end of the season, she starts putting herself in one. We wouldn't understand what the fuck's going on. This is a hook to let us yeah. in, but like. It's not good, but I honestly don't know how you do it better. (laughs) I think the only thing that makes it a little bit better would just be, like, not the word. Like, it wouldn't be the word in her head. Mm. Like, maybe it was if it was, like, an image of, like, a cocoon. Like, she didn't have... It didn't have to be a word she didn't know. It, it, It could just be, like, she imagines, like, a changing cocoon. I don't know. how How vague can you go without just giving it away, I guess, is the problem. Is this also a, a product of the writing of the time in which maybe you could have shown visually when she was reading Delenn's mind a cocoon instead, instead of us hearing it through blatant dialogue? Because right, it could be, it could have been like Blade Runner, where where Ridley Scott just in super you know, puts in footage of a butterfly. Yeah, yeah, or, or yeah, <laughs> he uses reuses footage from Legend from to Legend, <laughs> yeah, exactly. unicorns because <laughs> it's clunky because it's obvious foreshadowing. It's the characters looking at the screen saying that is going to come up later, by the way, and it's not a particularly interesting mystery at this point. You just go, oh, I didn't know that this was something. I guess I have to note that down now, and it's not that interesting or rewarding in the. Like in the rewatch, because I'm more intrigued. I'm like, ah, oh, she's playing with the triangles already. That's the yeah. more interesting part. And then again, and then that's a visual thing, and they don't explain it throughout the entire season. She's just doing it, and you, you think, oh, this is a TV trick where 
like in Star Trek Enterprise, for instance, where in Star Trek Enterprise, a lot of their briefing scenes are them having juice or tang and food. So <laughs> it breaks up the monotony of characters standing there saying lines of dialogue. This is for her, right? Where she's fiddling with something. She's making something yeah. throughout it's the season. It's just to give movement. But then the there's a payoff to it. And that's far more satisfying than Elisa Belden saying, Chrysalis! And then Sinclair whispering to himself, Chrysalis? <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Chrysalis. We have to eat our vegetables now. We have yeah. talked about the telepath plot of the episode. Rachel, lead us in. What's happening here? What's happening in this B plot? But Pat already said it. <laughs> no, 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 no. Let me know. Let me know the actual plot. Because he, he, he gave us I a like... Rachel plot. <laughs> yeah, but she is a bag of flour. No, no, no. Rachel, who is this bag of flour? <laughs> This oh, bag of flour honest. that only speaks in questions, but like, but not like a Vorlon. She's, like a she's more like a Metal Gear character, Metal Gear Solid <laughs> yeah, yeah. Snake, where it's like Psychomantis. Okay, Metal um... Gear. Metal Gear Revolution Rex. There are two passwords: Baker. You talked Psychomantis. And the Psycho pays for all this. Ivanova and Talia fight over the custody of a a young woman with latent telepathic abilities that have now come to fruition and Talia wants her to join the cycle and Ivanova wants her to not. So then they explore different options, one of them being that she could go to the Narn homeworld and then later on they're like, oh, what about Minba? We can tie it to the A-plot. We can tie it to the A plot. Yeah. This is one of the better examples in season one of A and B plots intersecting and tying together. Uh, Obviously, Elisa Belden solves the A plot mystery by invasively scanning Delenn, which has been set up in the episode, so that's fun. I actually like... Here's the thing. We're kind of all setting this up like this is a bad plot. I actually like this plot idea, and it's only brought down by to me by one key element, and we all know what key element that is, hence we're going to do a spotlight on her as an actress. But what do you think of this actual plot, Pat? Is it a plot? <laughs> it's a side quest. Um, I get really bogged down by her performance, so that's I mean, I'm glad we're going to talk about it, but it's just it's interesting because we want to know more about like what happens when you join the core, or at least like. Like what when happens found when a telepath is discovered? Yeah, mm. and it's and it's interesting that you have somebody who is out for her benefit with Avadova who wants to give her options because she didn't have that. Well, her mother didn't have that really. Um, you know, we now we know that Avadova has a little bit of psi uh, ability, but um, it's interesting in the sense. But it didn't did it. It's better than the whole telepath story of season five. I'll say that. Um. <laughs> if this little but. girl was actually Byron, that would have been funny. <laughs> oh, that'd be like, five. it comes back. I mean, yeah, that would have been more interesting. Look, I wrote letters. Yeah. Now I'm visiting the station. Oh, no. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. No, but it's, it is interesting. There's a lot of the questions of just like the world building of what it means to be a telepath in this in this universe that JMS has created. Um, it's just, it's so like a very special episode uh, form of delivery, you know, where she's just always asking like, 
what's this? I don't understand. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's not great. It's, it's fine. It's just, it's there and it pays off because she connects with the A, the A plot. It, yeah. It is there to perform a service and a function and it does it. And it doesn't do it as well as it potentially could because the actress. Yikes. Is, yeah, like, it's her first performance, uh, and too sh- clearly she is trying. She's trying. She's trying. And right. it does not work. I don't know. I think this is a really fun plot. I agree. It gives us a cool, interesting avenue of the Psycore and how that works, and people getting enlisted in Psycore and what happens, and two people whose abilities spark up later in life because we've been demonstrated that's a thing that can happen uh, in the show already with uh, Jeffrey Combs's character, for instance. He got his abilities later in life. What happens, and same with, obviously, Yvonne of his mother. And I love the pitch of having an episode where Ivanova and Talia fight the whole episode and maybe learn a little bit about each other along the way because... That's the interesting relationship that this show really doesn't tackle enough is Talia and Ivanova. That's what the first episode was, was the the Mm -hmm. friction and the tension between these two characters. And so you have an episode where the pitch is Ivanova doesn't want Talia to put someone in the psychor. Doesn't that sound like a great plot? Not only one that would have intense emotions, but also could bring some humor to the affair because... Ivanova is a funny character. You get Natoth involved. Natoth is fucking great in this episode. I love her in this episode. I love the whole gag about, good idea about the teeth, though. And you can see, like, she's mentally noting that down for future endeavors of this. But I was asking Rachel this before we recorded. I want to ask you, Pat. Refresh my memory. Is this the only episode in which the two of them have a plot together for the entire episode? Until... Of, until Talia leaves? Until, yeah, because then I think that's, yeah, the episode she leaves, they have, like, they Sleep spend, overs. like, the night hanging out. Yeah, like, that, that, that's, like, the actual episode that I can, I, I, I can think of. Yeah, There's that might the be the, end that of might an be the truth. where Talia hangs out with Ivanova, and Ivanova's like, take off your badge. But they don't have a plot in that episode together, right? Right. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. I think you're right. That This is, like, the episode that they have from beginning to end, other than the end. So, when we do get to Talia leaving the show, a lot of the emotional impact that Ivanova and Talia have in this episode hinges on this story, because this is the only time in which they interact for a full episode and actually have a dynamic until then. Isn't that weird? It is weird. I wish that, I wish that like, one of the Drazis gave her a green scarf. <laughs> and, and then they just like rehash it out there. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, yeah, that is that is very weird considering how much, uh, upon rewatching especially, how much value I put into their relationship. I mean, I mean we all build it up of uh, what it could have been, you know, if JMS was allowed to write the stories he wanted to write in the 90s and if the actress had married... Uh, Jerry Doyle. Uh, what's Jerry Doyle? Yeah, and also yes. got a better gig with NYPD Blue because that was also another. Oh, was that? That was it. Yes, yes. Okay, I knew it was like some crime show. Why yeah. don't they give them plots together? That's something that's always confused me. If JMS knew the 
one of the end goals was a tragedy for the two of them because obviously a part of the original storyline would have been this control thing and that would have been a but at no point in the show outside of this episode do they ever really bother to give them a story together they will have stories that run into each other like Ivanova is in mind war but Ivanova doesn't interact with Talia all that much all she gives her is a glass of water that's it and the first yeah. episode is Talia trying to get Ivanova's attention. That's it. And, like, that's it. Why is there no other episodes of these two having stories together? Why is that not here, Rachel? I don't know. Like, <laughs> it doesn't make sense in, like, the long game term of things. I It might just be that, like, each time they kind of thought of it and they didn't have time, they went with something else. I don't know. Because the actresses have good chemistry, not just in terms of, obviously, romantic chemistry, if they were actually going to go there, but just on-screen dynamics. They're very fun to watch in this episode, bickering back and forth at one another. Yeah. They're very enjoyable, but uh, what do you what do you think, Pat? I mean, we all know what JMS wanted to do with these characters, but at no point does the show ever really put them together enough. Why? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. I think that it just it, it does speak to the the frustration that the actress must have had why why she left because they weren't really doing anything with the character like well enough, anyways. And to have to give her the time and to give that time to be shared with Ivanova, like it's almost a miracle we got this episode. Yeah. I just don't understand for a, a show that has such dedication. To even the small players like Naroon, it's almost as if they never cared about Talia as a character, yet there's a big hoopla about how she left the show and, oh, if she stayed on, we would have given her all this amazing stuff, and look how we ended her story with this twist and sadness and all of this stuff, yet when she's here, she's barely here for a start, and when she is... She's in plots by herself where other characters have to fix it for her. And this is the only one where, really, her and Ivanova get stuff to do. This is the one where all the fanfic get their images from, <laughs> for fuck's sake. <laughs> yeah, other than, the, other than the sleepover. Yeah, yeah other than the it's... actual final episode where yeah. she leaves. Yeah. This is the other yeah. one because they both have very butch haircuts in this episode. Oh, yeah, her, yeah, Tali's hair is really weird in this episode. She gets a fringe yeah. at the end. <laughs> Yeah. For some reason. She gets a fringe at the, she got a haircut in between. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I remember yeah, on the when I rewatched this episode for the pod, I was like, her hair is weird here. What? Like what just happened? Yeah. I I don't understand I I understand why the actress left, but I don't understand why the show never used her. And I think an, a byproduct of the show never using her is a lot of her episodes are her on her own in a way where it feels like the show is always reintroducing us to her as a character rather than expanding upon an ongoing arc. Because another thing is, when you watch this episode, do you ever think about the fact that she has telekinesis and that's a secret she's hiding? Because I sure don't. Until she mentions Jason Ironheart and then she's like, don't you mention Jason. It's like, oh yeah. Remember that? And then she just unprompted starts talking about having sex with another telepath. Like, we get it. If you bring up Ironheart, we'll she'll always bring that up. Yeah. 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 Have you ever wondered what happens when telepaths make love, Commander? <laughs> no. <laughs> I asked you to pass the sugar with your telekinesis. That's all I wanted. <laughs> 
Do you know what it's like when telepaths make love, Commander? Psychomantis. It's time to spotlight the actor that we all know we had to spotlight. People are crying out. Why not John Vickery? Because he comes back. We can talk about him later. We need to talk about an actress who I think is so interesting because in the B5 community, she is the most infamous, I would say, guest star performance. We are talking about uh, Grace Una, if I'm not mistaken, who plays Elisa Belden. Uh, am I wrong to say that she's one of the most infamous, Pat? I think that's pretty accurate to say that because it's like I forgot, but I immediately remembered all of it as soon as I saw her. <laughs> it's uh, I had that scream in my head before she did, and it was her just asking all of the questions that she asked the whole episode all at once, shouting in my head. And you're um, dirt on your face because you're homeless. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's apparently like a really good pickpocket, but she gets caught pretty quickly. Uh, uh, by like I, I, the guy who runs the shop that he's like hey thief like I know that guy from a, a million things I would almost I wish we could rather talk about him but no we have to talk about her yeah <laughs> I wish yeah. we could talk about that guy instead of the well, main he, force he's of like, the B plot he's, he's also like I know he's like he's been in Star Trek and he's been in so many things in the 90s I just you know I don't know who he is he's a character actor but no we, the, the screams call out that we talk about her I yeah, she just, I feel like she's, you know, she's supposed to be like 14, but I feel like the actress is like 20. So she's like, how do I convey 14 year olds? I just ask questions as like up, what's it, what's it called? Like up voice inflection. or vowel? Up, yeah, just the inflection that she uses. Like, what's that? What are drugs? Why is Psychor? Like, it's just. So yeah, cold and yeah. alien. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, it's like I always, I, I want, I, I'm not an actor, so I don't want to like be mean about it, but it's just, it stands out compared to everybody else in the episode so much that it just, it brings uh, an infamous uh, status, yes. Yeah, like that, that's it. Like it's just not good. And it's like, uh, yeah, it's her first role. But really, you cast her? Like, what did she do in her audition that made you think that she was going to be able to carry this plot? Because that's what the character is meant to be doing. I'll tell you. I've watched Star Trek, so I can tell you. And this isn't to be derogatory. She's cute. That was it. A lot of Star Trek plots with kid characters or teen characters... They don't give a shit if the acting's good sometimes because it's hard to find a young actor who can be a, who can be good. If they're cute, then maybe that will push it through. That's all I can give you as an answer because she's terrible. She's she's terrible. And I don't want to pick on her either because this segment is supposed to highlight someone, but she's infamous. She has a legacy. It would be weird not to mention her. And this is a prime example of how a guest performance can entirely derail a script because... I can't tell you if the character is well written because as you say, Pat, all she does is ask questions, but the actress asks them in such an artificial way that you can't help but notice that. While there are other characters, like I said jokingly, Snake from the Metal Gear games, that's his character. (laughs) All he says is, Metal Gear, but 
David Hayter's a really good performer, so you don't give a shit that that's all he does in those games, right? You don't care, because he reminds you of Kurt Russell, who's cool. So, I, she's, she's, she's what, she's not very good, and I feel bad for her, because they hired her, and there's clearly something wrong with her ability to perform, and they threw her in, and they made her the central focus of the story, and the story is already hard to buy into, because, at least for myself, I don't like stories in my sci-fi where it hinges on a child, and because I've seen so many bad versions of that, thanks to Star Trek, I've lived through Wesley Crusher stories before, so... yeah. It's my a hard sell. My sympathy is very low for these type of stories, and when you give me a performance like this, it's it's it it's fucking difficult to not get annoyed at them because we all want to be respectful. But I can only speak for myself as a viewer. When I view things just in my own home, I aren't. I'm not afraid to be derogatory at the screen. Like mm-hmm. I say, when Wesley shows up, I always say, oh man, I want to punch his face. Or I say, shut the fuck up, Wesley. Or I say stuff like that. Like, I'm very mean-spirited because I really don't enjoy the performance or the character. But I'm not going to go on a podcast and say, fuck Will Wheaton. I will now because he's a grown-up who's a hack sellout. He can go fuck himself. But he brings in that dough. You know, I'm not going to say that Grace Una should go fuck herself for this performance. They hired her, and they probably should not have hired her, but they were a low-budget show, and they needed someone in the age range who was also cute. I was going to say, I feel like the miscasting part of it is, like, I feel like they needed, like, an actual little kid. Like, someone even younger. Because then you would have maybe been more forgiving, I feel like. She was just just old enough, but no matter how cute of a kid she might be, but she was just old enough that you're like, you should know better. The kid in <laughs> Believers was so much better. Yeah, he was. Yeah. Yes, yes, so, yes, yeah. And Believers, that episode, yeah. he, he he was a good performer. Like, yeah, and he actually worked as a child and carrying that plot. Babylon Five, even in minor minor roles, gets better child actors. In uh, the ISN episode, when we get the Psycor ad with Little Johnny, <laughs> that kid's a great kid actor. We've seen him in Star Trek be a great kid actor in the episode where they're stuck in the turbo lift with uh, Jean Luc Picard. So <laughs> the one who, who like I grew mold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So. It's not like B5 isn't capable of getting good child performances either, but like you say, she's old enough where I couldn't tell you how old the actress is. It doesn't tell me her age on IMDb. I couldn't tell you. Like, I didn't know if she was actually a teenager or if she's my age or 20. I don't know how old the actress is. So I don't know if I should be less forgiving or not when it comes to her. What happened? I peeked into her mind. I know I'm not supposed to, but... What was it like in there? Ugly. Alien. It's not like looking into a human mind. It felt like I was falling into something terrible. This was the first acting role on, you know, according to IMDb, when it comes to TV and film. It's a, it's a show. It's a, it's a, it's a big sci-fi show. Like it's a weird sci-fi show with all these crazy things going on. She's gone on to do a few more roles since this, and then she has did nine, disappeared. Nine in total. So this aired in 94, and her last credit was something that came out in 2000. And I'm curious if she knows 
what her legacy for the fans of this show is. And how that makes her feel if she does know. I'm always curious of where these actors are. she's out there, hopefully living her life. I can't find any... Being happy with whatever she's ended up doing, because it appears that it's not acting. Yeah, and I, but I always find it curious when, for both the good and bad performers of this show, I always wonder what it's like for these actors who, this was just a week for them filming, and 25 years ago or whatever, and they've moved on. I'm curious what she, what it's like for her, because, Pat, we've said it, she is heralded as the worst performance in the entirety of Babylon 5, which is a show that has many bad performances in it. Yeah, I think just cause, especially because of the, the line count, like there's probably a, a, maybe as bad of a performance, but that's like a, a character who has like one line as opposed to like a petulant child, I guess, for a whole episode. She outdid um, Jinxo. I like Jinx though, um, but I I think I think because he is uh, one an adult and he's supposed to be funny, like is he? you're supposed to laugh at him. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that's I think that's why I think I like him in that sense. But uh, here, like I'm not supposed to laugh at her every time she asks a question. That's like, what's that Chris always? Um, <laughs> but no, my my other hot fuzz reference was like I imagine there's some she's in some small town. Where they like the town council is always like, oh, we really would like her to be in the the local production of Romeo Post Juliet. She was in an episode of Babylon Five, I hear. Like, oh, oh. That's, <laughs> her, that's her credit. And then, <laughs> yeah, that 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 kiss was the most believable part of the performance. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did find out an interesting fact. I watched the scene she's in in her last performance, which is a, which is in a Nicolas Cage film, Gone in sixty seconds. Oh, I have seen that movie, but... Oh my, she okay. is in a scene with Emerson Codd from Pushing Daisies. That character mm-hmm. is Emerson Codd. Mm-hmm. She... Was it Chi McBride? That's the actor. She's in his scene where we cut to what he's up to now, and he's a driving instructor, and she is uh, a character called Jenny, yeah. apparently, and she yeah. is an Asian stereotype in which she cannot drive and does not speak any lines of dialogue, but it's clear that she cannot speak English, and all she does is cry hysterically, and I watch the scene, and she's terrible in that, too. <laughs> she's Well, clear. she's terribly, perfectly cast, though. Like, oh, maybe it works like in the full context of like a humorous scene, but like I watched it knowing who she is and watching her performance, I was like watching how she's clearly not obviously crying and it's all fake, and so I was laughing at that. I'm like, here's here's my hot take. It's so funny seeing her as an adult in that. Like she's much more of an adult in that. She has longer hair. She's aged. The weird statement to make is she she her face grew out. She <laughs> she she has such a tiny face in this show. And then her face grew out to the rest of her head, and so she looks like she has a normal proportioned face, but in this, her face is so small. But it makes you look back at this episode of Ballad 5 and be like, it's so tiny. Yeah, my face <laughs> is so interesting, tiny. Interesting, interesting. I think I want to go the rest of the way by myself. Goodbye. What do we want to rate legacies? Out of our impervious system of rating, which is yum being bad and yum yum being good, I will kick off. I think this is a yum yum. Yum yum. It's a yum for me. Yum. It's just not that good. Like, it's good within the context of the show, but as an episode, I'm just like, yeah, it does its thing. I can't believe you. 
How could you have done I have to give some yums occasionally, Ryan. I can't give every episode a yum yum. I know. I won't hold you accountable for your ratings. That's always unfair. Because if I did that, then I would be like, well, you gave this Discovery episode a yum yum, but you're not going to give this Babylon 5 episode that? You motherfucker. How could you have done this? I can't believe you've done this. But I can't. I can't believe you've done this. Pat, take us home. What's your rating for this? Yum being bad or yum yum being good? She might have swayed me. <laughs> You're fucking kidding. Because <laughs> maybe I should have gone. I love again Naroon, <laughs> but this is it. This is it, my Naroon. Instead, no! I get a child asking questions. I think I give it a yum. Yeah. I wasn't expect. Wow, I'm I'm totally blindsided by this, Rachel. Please, please, calm my nerves down by telling me what we're going to be watching next week on Babylon Five. On an all new Babylon Five. We are moving on to episode 18 of season one, A Voice in the Wilderness, part one. It's barren and uninhabited. That's what station members think, until they finally explore the strange planet nearest them and find it's a threat to their survival. One thing that I want to add is that this episode in particular used a bunch of CG shots that include the planet in it. Okay. That's a fact. That's a fact. They're setting it up. Oh, oh you mean Legacies used a bunch yeah. of CG. Sorry, I thought you said that one did. I'm like, yeah, well, that one involves the planet, right? Yeah. No, but like this one, it, like... It reminds you that in it the exists. Ma- yeah, in the majority of the station-wide shots... Um, it includes the planet as well, which like mm-hmm. it helps give perspective for how big the Minbari ship is. One of the few double part, like, like uh, one of part the, one, part two. Yeah, yeah, one of the few double parters in the show where there is a direct part one, part two in the title. One of what, only two in the show, where the other What's one the is other one? Sinclair coming back. And War Without End, part one, part two, where Sinclair comes back and Babylon 4's back. Mm-hmm. I think that's the only other one. I wonder why they did that. We'll talk about it next week in depth. Uh, Pat, it was such a pleasure to have you on talking about B5, showing you around the station of Yum Yum 5, letting you see a lovely delicatessen, letting you see a, a lovely vineyard. Letting you see all of our lovely, lovely things. Oh, look, look over there. There's a thief. Thief, thief. thief. Get out of here. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I didn't see the thief. I was too busy hitting dingers in the baseball field. <laughs> I can't believe there's a baseball field on Babylon Yeah, Fire. they talk about, like, you can't have coffee, but we can have a baseball field. Oh, you know, it's it's the sport everybody loves in, in the world. Not this just in America. True. This is true. <laughs> Uh, so thank you, Pat, for coming on and talking Babylon 5. It was such a pleasure to have you on talking about a show you like uh, rather than Star Trek Discovery. But if we ever have a good standalone Star Trek Discovery episode again in season four, I'm sorry, that sentence is incorrect. That won't happen. But we'd love <laughs> to have you on again if possible for that. If you're if not, willing to subject yourself to Discovery again. If not, we'll have you back on for a B5 I mean, episode. that was the most... I feel like that was the most obvious uh, soundbite insert where it's just her going, I can almost see it. Ah. (laughs) (laughs) I'd really like to see it. I almost can if I could.
Uh, well, Rachel, that's it from us. Uh, we have talked about the episode, and it is over now. That is the legacy of legacies. It's over now, and I'm the only one who liked it, apparently. Yeah. What a, what a nightmare. I didn't hate it. It's just not that it, good. That's the rating system. So, <laughs> yeah. So it's I, your fault. You came up with the rating system. You said that it was infallible. It's infallible, and I'm right. Uh, fun fact, the, the cart seller guy that uh, Pat is obsessed with. He's from with, Saved by the Bell. <laughs> he was the devil. He was Satan in UHF. That is the most important <sighs> thing to know. And he was also yes. in Intolerable Cruelty. One of my favorite films. Yes, Saved by the Bell. And, Mr. Uh, Weaver. Yeah. And, yeah, of course. I've never seen Saved by the Bell, and I don't plan to. Oh, okay. So, okay, and Benjamin enough. Button, The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. What a fantastic catalog of work. We should have done him for the spotlight, but we didn't. We chose Grace Una. So, sorry. You can find us on the social medias of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Reddit, Tumblr, TikTok, blah, 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 blah. All of those. You can follow us on those. We are posting stuff, interacting, engaging, sharing even more fun little details that we Keep didn't get to include. Keep an eye out for that Pacmara. Pacmara. Rachel, do we have a Patreon? Yeah, we do. Where you can get even more content, us talking about Star Trek episodes that are good or bad according to IMDb user score ratings. Yeah, we've done yesterday's Enterprise. And Code of Honor. Yeah. And then we're also talking about the X-Men movies because we did all of the Star Trek movies, so they're there for you to listen to. Like, there's a bunch of extra content that you can get there. Yeah. Yep. Sorry. What order are you guys watching the X-Men movies? Sorry. Now I'm curious. Uh, In the release date order. Release order. We aren't going the first class then back and forward. Could you imagine what a nightmare that would be? I, I, I can't imagine watching... One movie where it's set in the '90s and he's played by James McAvoy, then, then hard cut to one set in 1999 and he's played by Patrick Stewart. I can't handle that. I couldn't <laughs> handle that. That would be too shocking for my. I don't nerves. want that life. No. <laughs> so we're talking about those. Uh, we give our thoughts and other things. You can give us a rating and review on whatever podcatcher you use to do so. It would be greatly appreciated. I'm sure if I go on to the Canadian Apple podcast, I'll see a glowing review from Pat saying, this podcast is yum yum. I wet my pants. Isn't that right, Pat? (laughs) I'm going to see that by the time we finish this recording. Hmm? I'll probably use the word moist. Moist. I moisted my pants real yeah. good. Moist, moist. Yeah. Moist, moist. Yum, See, that's yum. what we say in Canada. We don't say yum, yum. We say moist, moist. <laughs> A Canadian equivalent podcast is called the Moist, Moist Podcast, where they just say, mm, moist, moist. It's weird because Discovery was shot in Canada, yet they still use the yum, yum take. Very odd. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Very odd of them. Uh, that's it, people. We're done. We're dusted. We say our farewells the only way one can. Rachel. Good good eating to you. Oh, good eating to you, Rachel. Good eating to you, Pat. (laughs) Good moist to you. 